But let's, let's, let's pivot away from this conversation slightly and let's talk about the, uh, the sugar and fat tax that was announced recently as a potential, I think it was a think tank that announced it and, and recommended it to the government. Yeah, independent think tank. One question that you know I haven't found an answer to yet is, why did they even decide to make this a report? So if the, it's independently funded, who funded it? Uh, one, one of the lead people is, is the guy in charge of Leon and they're all about healthy food. Right. And I think one of the aspects that they were they were looking at was the health of the nation. Um, I, I know he's been quite vocal in criticism of the government about the way they've handled uh, the lockdown process and uh, furlough. Um, so I I would guess that he's not a conservative voter. So <laughs> I, I think that he. Um, uh, I, th- I think the whole reason why they're bringing this forward is because their argument is is that in the lower sort of income brackets, processed food is cheaper. So therefore, that's what you're getting, and you're ca- you're causing an issue down the line because the report that I saw anyway seems to suggest that by the time you're about forty five, if you've eaten like that, then you've already definitely got a medical condition. Yeah, that makes sense. But the thing is. I think that the title is very misleading because ultimately it's not a sugar tax. It is a tax on everything which, you know, is of a low grade and affects health. Because you've got, you haven't just got the sugar, mm. you've got high in fat, you've also got salt, so you've got like a lot of meats. Yeah. That are going to be taxed as well as like when you think about a sugar tax, cakes and biscuits and stuff like that. It's all going to be taxed. Well, it's, it's, I think it's weird as well because like taxing these foods because they're bad for you that doesn't help anyone who's poor because they now have to spend more money on food and they don't have an option and all you're doing is raising the value of that processed food up to the same value as the the fruit and vegetables and if you're having to work more to pay for your food then suddenly convenience food becomes the factor which means that you're still going to pick the processed food because it's easier to do than it is to make a home-cooked meal necessarily because you don't have time. You know, it's funny. I agree. What is actually the right path to follow? Because if you can't tax it to, to get the companies to actually make it healthier, then what do you do? Other than say that you have to shut down the market in terms of how much product each company can produce and so on which is even worse well as we know the government don't actually know what healthy food is so there's there's a problem there in the first place because the way they define from there the what the, that healthy eating meal or uh, plate or whatever it is thing we know that there's a huge amount of like bread and pasta and stuff on there anyway so there's an issue there because I'm worried that whenever they announce these kind of nutritional things, they're going to tax the wrong thing because they end up taxing stuff which they say is unhealthy but is not necessarily that bad for you. But by their definition, is because that's how they think it is. So, I mean, one potential solution is, have you ever been to um, the city farm in Vauxhall? No. Okay. So there's, there's what's, what's very odd is, if you go behind Vauxhall train station, there's a a park and there's a little farm it's got animals and it's got horses and it's got pigs and it's got sheep it's got chickens it's got all these different animals and the reason it's there is because i think in the 70s um 
the owners of, of the of the land realised that a lot of the kids growing up in the estates around the area were quite deprived and never seen these animals before, didn't know what they looked like and couldn't afford a trip to go to to see them. So they set up a communal farm that's run and, and a lot of the people that work on the farm are from the estates around it. So that's what you then see is this this effectively farm is set up there. Theoretically you could encourage like communal vegetable gardens, that kind of thing around these these estates and have local people in those estates grow them because then you possibly will create more of a community spirit in there and possibly a collective like thing about the food and they could theoretically get that food because they're growing from seeds at a reduced price or whatever how much does it cost to have an allotment because think about it, a lot of people in london don't have gardens per se but they do go to an allot- allotments allotments is a waiting list for uh because of the rarity of space, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it's not that cheap. I think if you're in a collective, you could probably do it. Per 25 square metres, one rod. If you're a borough resident, it's £20 a year in Greenwich. If you're not, it's £41 a year. So it's not that expensive, but 20, 25 square metres, how big is that? That's quite big. It's a decent sized space. The issue, I think, is... But then you've got convenience. Where is where is the allotment in relation to where the person lives? Because you've got to think about it. M- My family have been telling me to grow crops for years. And I've said no. It's only when I got to a certain level of my own personal maturity I understood the value in it. Mm. Rather than, you know, just having been, it been a pastime of you getting up and just, you know, tending to the crops. So, if it's not on their doorstep, no one's really going to see the convenience to start looking into it or start doing it, then see the reward and get that, how can I say, that maintenance to keep going. If you're wanting an allotment, in London, apparently on average, you're looking at about 400 people ahead of you. And you only get an allotment when someone fails to make the payment. A payment of £40? Yeah, or dies. So, ultimately, they, there's not enough space for allotments. Yeah. How insane is that? Oh, that is ridiculous. So, yep, you've got it. Creating farming space within concrete estates. Well, you, you can. Have you seen those vertical farms they do in um, uh, Holland and places like that? Yeah, I've seen that, but you... Richard, as a part-time farmer now, you've got to understand there's a lot that goes into those vertical farms. But the other potential solution is rather than take up ground space that's already there, you create like a, a platform somewhere up, you know, in in uh, you know above ground, and then you effectively put the soil in and bedding in there so they can do it on that so it's like um, of course you just need to make sleepers just raise beds that's yeah, all they need because there, there's solutions around this and they surely will cost less than this government initiative I mean the, the thing I'm presuming the government are interested in is the tax because it makes them some money but going back to that you also have an issue with like so does that mean if you're like buying say like Himalayan salt you're going to get taxed because you're buying pure salt right and then does that mean if you're buying and also like how much that the proposed tax I think was like six pounds a kilo <laughs> right 
Is that a lot? Like, how much? How, I, I've never measured salt by the kilo. Is that a lot of salt? Well, extra six pound on like a bag of Himalayan salt might be quite expensive. But then, is Epsom salts? Is that going to get taxed? We can talk about this all day long. However, the minute you heard Boris speak, he just kind of brushed it to the side. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're because there's too many people that are probably you know putting money in their pockets in terms of the farm, the farming industry to keep things the way they are. That he's not going to give it. To also, that. the processed food thing because what he knows and. I don't want to say he's, he's doing it for the benefit of people because I don't know if he is, but what he will know is how many people are employed by the processed food industry and how big a powerful lobby it is, effectively. And we don't really have lobbies in the same way that America does, but in, in that sense. So whether their purchasing power and value is more than this think tank, and therefore that's probably what the motivator is. See, so now there should be... Uh, there should be an active lobby and a campaign to create growing space in apartment in in um, council blocks. Because it, it makes sense to do it in um, lower, in- typically lower income areas, because yeah. it gives them an understanding of what's of of what it takes to make these things and the value of them, and potentially it's it's future jobs down the line because they could all move you know from council blocks in wherever built up metropolitan areas like london into potential farming jobs in the future because they understand farming crop rotation stuff like that it it would actually probably benefit massively but it's probably too sensible an idea which is why it will never happen and also it probably would benefit too many people (laughs) yeah and that's another problem this is the training talks podcast with your hosts richard kelly of rk fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. Okay, welcome back, listeners. We are looking at second goal motivation. So what we're looking at here is is a, is a very specific topic that I don't think is really discussed too widely. So once when, when you come to a gym or when you start doing exercise, you typically have a goal. You have a goal that either you want to lose this amount of weight or you want to get um, build up your muscle mass or get a bit bigger or stronger or run a bit faster or whatever it is but what do you do once you've achieved that once you've hit that point and you've you know you've run your marathon you've lost your 10 kilos you've had the wedding what do you then do to move forward because i think for a lot of people they hit this sort of mental barrier of the fact that they've been so focused on this one thing for so long that they get sort of bogged in and go well i'll just continue going along I'll just continue going along or they go well I've hit that point now and then they stop so what do you then do we'll be right back after the break welcome back to part two so for me one of the one of the key aspects here is about why they want to lose that weight so are they are they trying to lose that five kilos because they they've got a health concern you know that if they've got high cholesterol if they've got diabetes are they have they been told by the doctor they need to lose weight or is it something to do with a body confidence thing are they unconfident about how they look do they have a another issue maybe they've got uh, some sort of eating disorder maybe not to the level of anorexia but maybe they've got body dysmorphia and really they can't really see that they're they're lean or is it you know an athletic thing where they're a runner and losing five kilos would be more of a functional use sort of thing that would help them be quicker what is the reason they're trying to lose the weight and once you understand that reason, it becomes a lot easier to plan out the second 
sort of thing they should follow that up with yeah definitely I think this is where a lot of trainers miss a key thing at the beginning in being able to create a not a permanent but a more long lasting connection between you and your client because yeah once you get this right you're less likely to lose them over the first six months to a year or how long however long it takes to get to that first goal yeah and I I think as well this is also where the motivation behind that goal becomes relevant because for a lot of people with with their initial goal it's usually something that's been partly motivated from an external factor so either someone said something to them or they've been say say their doctors encourage them to lose weight or it's something where you know they feel like they're particularly small and they want to gain some muscle. So you're talking about intrinsic and extrinsic. Yeah. And so this is this is the extrinsic thing. So it, it can be a trigger, but there's always something intrinsic underlying that which keeps them in position. So, you know, they start to, to think they are too small or they start to, to recognise the fact that their lifestyle is is unhealthy and they do need to lose weight or whatever it will be. And so that, in, that intrinsic thing is the longer-lasting uh, longer motivator the extrinsic thing is is gone because once you start to move in the right direction people tend to stop talking about it and you can tend to find that you're in the right track when people no longer make the comment that they made before so if it is a weight loss thing people stop mentioning your weight because you're moving in the right direction so they stop talking about it which is usually the point at which you no longer get any external feedback about how you're doing when it's an internal intrinsic kind of motivator when you're driven from inside you can objectively go i'm doing well i'm i'm here i'm 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 achieving and then you can move forward yeah and but one of the issues you know moving on to this is the problem with intrinsic goals more than i'd say extrinsic is you can get to that point where when it's more internalized you start to you know associate it to things which mean you start to chase perfection yeah. So, you know, in my assessment, one of the conversations, one of the parts of the conversation I have is I talk about, you know, is there anyone who, you know, you'd like to model your body on? Right. And I say it very loosely because if you say it and say, okay, we're going to plan to model your body on this person and stick to that, the person keeps that as a goal and thinks to themselves, you know what, I have to look like this person. However, down the line, like three or four months down the line, you realise they actually can never get to that point because their body isn't matchable to this other person's. I dislike that modelling conversation, so I tend to move away from it. However, there are certain individuals where you know that there's a there's a, an aesthetics aspect to how they want to look. So I allow them to bring that in and then I explain how their body is different and they can't match it because you can see from, you know, stuff like limb length like I can't and you can't change the length of someone's femur so without going to those kind of extreme things you can't change certain aspects so you can't make that that difference right and it's it's like I've I've had people who've um like guys who sent me pictures of like Brad Pitt saying I would like to look like this he's about the same age as me and you think yes but he's six foot something and you are five foot five (laughs) and you're barrel chested right you are never going to be be that shape that is not going to be you right and equally you'll see these pictures of like these women will show you pictures of effectively like runway models and you think you're you're not going to get to that level because you're not that tall you're not you don't have that ectomorphic body style 
you know you can't get to that point um so going back to the motivational side of things that that picking that goal when um we've already said you sort of you you build it up during that that process that that first goal so you try and get that preloaded um do you think there's any value in having a pause point between one goal and the next goal where you're just exploring different exercises different movements trying to broaden out their understanding of of fitness no but that's because i do that on the way to the first goal yeah okay because if someone's not a beginner in the gym, it's a totally different scenario. But let's go over a beginner in the gym. That person has only been, you know, exposed visually to, you know, the main things, the main exercises. But, you know, you one of the things along the way, because, you know, you do the periodization, you focus on, let's say, kettlebell work. Uh-huh. Then you focus on sprint work. I hit all the different kind of modalities and the different types of training to see what works for them and what doesn't. And along there, also, you see what they like and what they don't like. So then when we get to the point of, you know, let's say we hit the first goal, which was the, not the weight loss, but, you know, the body looking the way they wanted it to. Yeah. Then I say, okay, so because you liked, let's say, kettlebells, we're going to work on kettlebells for a while. Right. And that in itself is a short-term goal and something for them to look forward to. And then we work on that while we work into, let's say, the second goal, which is creating a perfect structure between, or a more balanced structure between posterior and anterior. And when I say that, listeners, there's always a heavy focus on posterior in relation to anterior. <laughs> it's two to one, and if I wouldn't be really honest, it might even be three to one. But that's another conversation for another day. Yeah, and that's we definitely need to cover that at some point. Yeah, that's a very long one. Yeah. But yeah, so I would always I add those things in along the way to make sure that they have a... By the time they reach the first goal we've covered a wide amount of things so you know when we, once you pass that it's not like I'm just adding something in for the sake of it they already understand what they're doing like a Turkish get up by the time they get to go one they need to have done a Turkish get up so this is an interesting point because for me enjoyment is a crucial factor because Key. because when when you're dealing with somebody and you know someone comes along and they they you know so for the sake of argument they're they're a beginner they've come to the gym and they want to look uh, they want to improve their look and they know they need to lose weight and then they know they need to do some tone work. So you've got two things that you need to work on. So first of all, losing weight and toning up is not an easy process as everyone assumes. It's not just a case of doing some very simple things and getting a result. It can be, but for the vast majority of people, it actually takes longer than you think it does and there's a lot more work around it. But that's a different conversation. But let's say we're getting through that process. The key thing is to find something they enjoy because you need to, to build a stickability with this because they might be motivated to to reach a point, but if they're doing it uh, in spite of themselves, if they're, if they're hating the process, if they're not enjoying what they do, as soon as they hit that point, they're going to stop. Or well, as soon as they hit a bump in the road. Yeah. A lot of them don't even get to that goal. Yeah. But that's why I feel like you need to... At the beginning or the first month or two, you really need to figure out, like, sieve out those two types of people. Yeah. Because for the ones that don't like the process, you need to give them something that they do like. So for those type of people, I'd say, okay, so we need to get you playing a sport. See if a sport, if you like a sport. And, you know, a lot of you may think, yeah, but Lawrence, if they do that, then they won't train with you. But it's actually the opposite because Mm. once they find a sport, then you start linking the training to the sport. 
and say, we're going to do this because it'll help you do, you know, what you do on the other days and help you with this sport. And then it becomes more enjoyable because it's a means to help something else they really like. So it's kind of like the love for the sport passes over into the love for the training. Yeah. To be honest, if someone was going to train me, I love basketball and I play basketball every single day. I wouldn't go to the gym every single day. But I go to the gym knowing that if I do the right things, it will always cross over onto the basketball when I play enough basketball. Yeah, and I, I, I tend to find that another area where people are really interested in is, is people like to know about themselves. So when you're doing activities, exercises with them, if you're giving them feedback about themselves, they understand more about how their own body works and what feedback they're getting and what it means they then get a greater appreciation understanding for what you're bringing to the table for them and then they've got that stickability in place because you know it's really it's really easy for me to to go through stuff and explain to people um certain benefits for for what they're doing but when they actually start to see that is the case it makes a huge difference for example i mean just this morning i had a lady who i've been working with since i think it's uh february she wanted to lose some weight and she wants to to tone up it's, it's a very simple kind of basic level goal but she's previously done stuff with people and although it's given her short-term results, it hasn't worked, for the, worked out for the long term. And a lot of what she's done has been like intensive hit style training, that kind of thing, um, doing uh, intensive courses where you do, say, five days a week of, of blasting sessions. I worked on the opposite end. I tried to build up her metabolism. I started to work on the, the strengthening toning side first. And then I told her that we're not going to see huge amounts of weight loss at this point because I want to build up that because her metabolism was was messed up. It was screwed. So one of the interesting things that happened this morning was out of the blue, she said to me that she's she's got a wedding in July, so two months ahead, and then they did the re-measurements. And all of her measurements were less than they were the previous time, but she hasn't lost any weight. And equally, the other conversation we had was this is the first month in like as far as she can remember where she hasn't had extreme bloating during her period and that's because of some changes we made around diet and around activity so we stabilized the hormone levels we've sorted out the metabolism so her metabolic rate is a lot faster she's almost at 3,000 calories a day metabolic rate according to her fitbit thing so we're doing well there and we've built more sort of tone firmness the weight stayed the same but the weight will, as you know, start dropping soon. And right. also, you know, you've got that crossover. When people talk about weight, you always need to differentiate between fat and muscle. And size. Because do they mean weight? Do they mean the size they have? So what's, what's good about this situation, though, is we've now proven what I'm talking about works. And it's, it's, it's now we've now got that proof with her. So now I've got buy-in. And therefore, that means that I can now start telling her other things and start seeing progress and I can start leading this conversation in a direction I want to go in rather than in the direction she has as a preconception for her goal yeah. but this is this is a trainer thing this is not necessarily if you're an individual listening and, and you've got a goal and you've got a preset goal in mind keep in mind that the way you want to reach your goal might not be the right way for you to reach that goal just because it works for one person doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone yeah and it, it's got to be based on your day to day needs that your mental state yeah there's so many factors that play in like you could say you've got a goal where you need to train five days a week but can you handle that with your work with your sleep pattern because if if you think about it some most people are saying they want to train five days a week after two months 
unless they're getting significant rest, they're going to burn themselves out. And it's going to be extreme overtraining because their body can't recover. But why would, why, why would that individual even want to train five days a week? But that's because for a lot of, for a lot of not a lot of, I don't want to badmouth trainers, but for a lot of trainers, it's more about the financial side rather than getting the person a goal. Yeah. And the more money they can get, the better. And on the flip side, for the person being trained, they're looking at what other people are doing. People always go with that mindset that more is better. Yeah. But to a certain degree, in a lot of aspects, more isn't better. There's a cutoff. Yeah. And I think for me, depending on who you are, I think three to four days is a cutoff. Yeah. Anything more than that, and there's always going to be diminishing returns with fitness. Because unless you're elite af- an elite athlete who has enough time to sleep, taking ridiculous vitamins, even taking special vitamins, yep. which, you know, listeners, that may be in a needle. That's a special vitamin, as we like to call it. Okay, I wasn't going there, but okay, fine. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a special <laughs> vitamin. Um, unless you're taking stuff like that, your body isn't going to recover and the state of overtraining will come in very quickly. Yeah. And if that comes in, then you're never going to get to your goal because you're going to keep going into a hole of under or detraining which you don't need to be in yeah and I think this is this is a key factor so it's easy enough to see from us I mean how many days a week would you say if you were to break down um, traditional gym training cardiovascular work and then what you'd call non uh, what's, what's that phrase that non deliberate exercise or whatever it's called like walking cycling that kind of thing into into stuff and just general play how many days a week what would that look like for you so if you're i'll give you two examples the first example is a person who's training the gym but is also doing a sport yeah but now let me get this right a sport where you can differentiate between high intensity aerobic work and technical work so we're looking at something like, say, uh, a basketball player or a... Tennis player. Tennis player or potentially something like a hurdler or a long jumper. Yeah, player. something where they've got the, the technical aspect can be separated from anything which is, you know, puts a lot of strain, stress on the body. Yeah. If it's that person, I would say if you're a normal person or athlete, then you could probably go to five days a week or four days with split sessions. Because the technical side doesn't have the same strain on the body as the actual full sport yeah it can be it can be broken down and then for someone let's go someone who's just no not really a sport person but more just a gym yeah i would say four days a week yeah maybe you go to that fifth day if you have a light cardio day but the problem is four days a week is perfect and can be moved into any modality it can be moved into endurance without any um, without any issues can be moved into strength can be moved into power can be moved into hypertrophy it can move into every single one and will always work for, always work without a doubt without without overtraining if you're looking at a non-sport person I would say you're looking at three to four yeah I agree. so it's, the vast majority of people don't need more than three yep. the, the fourth one when it comes in I if I was working with that person, would tend to use that on a technical aspect. So I'd be like working or mobility a, or a stability-based issue. So say like they've got an issue around um, their core, their core strength. I might take that as part of that day. So you've created a technical side to a yeah. non-sports person. Yeah, because that's their that's their flaw. So that's where I go in for that. 
you might if someone if someone was absolutely demanding for a fifth day you might make that a second mobility day maybe working around that or stability or whatever they need with someone who's sporting absolutely i agree with you when it's technically they're doing a technical sport you'd add in that technical based area the only people i think that would ever need to do more than that sort of fourth day really are people who are doing something where they've got an injury that they're rehabbing where they probably need to do stuff every day yeah i know yeah, what you mean because then they could go to six or six days but it's not challenging the body yeah and the only reason i bring that up at this point is because there will be people listening who are in that situation who they need to be physically told that because that is that is relevant it's not it's not like normal training where you do three or four days you need to do that every day you probably need to do that two or three times a day as well really to get the benefit and then the only other people apart from that would be individuals who are uh, potentially bodybuilders where they might have to go to six or seven days because the style of training they would do requires them to do that many sessions in order to get the right amount of low-level cardio work in and also the resistance work required. But this is where i ask you a question. With that standpoint, that's more... If they're going to do it fully, that's more pushing towards the elite bodybuilding. Yeah. And that's where I put in the question of, but what about special vitamins? Well, so this this is an interesting point. So a lot of the um, traditional bodybuilding style training, the split training and stuff like that, uh, has actually come in the, in the steroid era, if you want. So... Pre the steroid era, if you if you go if you go back to the history of bodybuilding, basically in the nineteen fifties and before that, they did a lot of push and pull upper lower sessions. So sessions used to be whole body and focus around that. And they'd normally do three or four sessions a week. And then their cardio work would come from walking and, and moving and stuff like that. It wouldn't be directed cardio. In sort of the Arnold era forwards, which is the nineteen seventies or so, you're looking at more sort of let's say medical help right <laughs> on, on this side Very tactical. so you're starting to look at, at split training coming in so split training comes in at this point and split training for the listener is basically where you do say like a chest day a back day a leg day and you break it up like that the reason why they do that is because the signal from the steroids mean that they get the anabolic effect in those areas for longer and also the steroid the other type of steroid they're taking means that they can handle much more load in one area for longer so for example if uh lawrence and i were to do a split day say we did a chest session and we would run through say bench uh incline bench decline bench some form of um tricep work some uh flies stuff like that right by the time we'd gone through the bench and the incline bench that's it we're probably done on, in terms of chest and we're experienced enough at trainers to have hammered ourselves to the point that we can't really go anymore and you could argue well surely if you kept doing it you'd eventually get strong enough to be able to handle it it's not about that because our strength level would have gone up so the relative weight we're lifting has gone up so the so the amount of damage and demand on our system has gone up and our neurological system has basically broken down and gone in a way that's what we're talking about if you take out the steroids you could get up to that stage of volume because yeah. it's, it's more about volume volume of work yeah but it would take, let's say, it would take you about a year to be able to get up to that level of volume and increase up to five days. But here's the thing. You increase up to five days, but you're probably still not lifting the max of weights that you should be lifting. Let's say you're meant to keep the weight at like 80%. You're okay. still going to be down to maybe 50, 55, 60% because 
you're always working under where you should be because you're trying to get volume, not max amount of strength out of each exercise. True hypertrophy is weird as well because technically speaking from a bodybuilder perspective, if you're, uh, let's say clean or natural or whatever term you want to use, you should be working between about 65 to 75% of your max and you want to be doing a four, uh, two, two cycle, typically 10 reps, four sets on all, all the movements. So with that in mind, if you think about it, how many people do you know do a four second negative, two second pause and two second up on every single rep at 75% of what they can lift for 10? None. Because... It burns. I mean, if, if, if you think about it, if, if say, um, you're, let's say, let's say you do a hundred kilo squat, right? So for 10, so 75% of that is obviously 75 kilos, but then at that tempo, an eight second rep is an 80 second set, right? It's not going to be 75, is it? Because Wait, I thought it was six seconds, not eight seconds. How no. many seconds pause in at the bottom? Two and two. Right, up. Yep. Cool. So yeah. you're, you're looking at an 80 second set that pause in there as well is going to kill you so it's not going to be 75 kilos realistically it's probably going to be about 60 to 65 the whole premise of the training changes because it's not about the weight you're lifting or the percentage it's more about how can you handle the time of the tension to cause the damage on the muscle yeah because that's the that's the part that sends the signal to build the muscle that's it the damage so you don't lift as heavy as you can do and that's why you could do um that style of hypertrophy training to, to benefit and split days and do that many days yeah but the thing about the steroid use and, and stuff like that one of the one of the areas it does not only does it um, build up the anabolic signal to build so it means that you can train worse in a, in a poorer way and still get the result it also means that you get a louder sort of signal from what you're what you're doing so you don't need to do four two two. you can do one second down one second up and you can do not four sets because your body has the handling of it. You could do eight sets. And those eight sets could be at 95% of your max or 100% of your max. Because you recover a lot quicker. Yeah. And that's what it gives you, right? So it, it just gives you the... It, it basically means you can be poor in your programming and get away with it. Um, right. So to summarize this, because I think we've gone off the track with second goal motivation, we aren't advocating steroid use. It's, it's an interesting topic to discuss because it's it's an area that I've heard other people talk about and I know somewhat how it works. I haven't used them. So I don't totally understand what they do. I understand some of the, some of the aspects of it, but we'll come to that another time because I think it's, a, it's an interesting topic to talk about. Um, but on the second goal motivation front, what sort of summary would you have and would you say? So one thing we didn't talk about but we'll leave for today is the health focus so making sure that you know one of the goals whether it's the second or third goal should be long-term health yeah and it happens more with um like people who are at a later age that once you get to 30s late 30s 40s then regardless of what you do in the health perspective always kicks in because you're thinking about how long can i do this what longevity can i give to my life by doing exercise of whatever form yeah um but yeah so i would always say to put health as an overall goal or a long-term goal because i always keep as a trainer that gives you more longevity as a person who likes to train also you know it helps you map out where you want to be yeah because if you don't map it out then you know a lot of things in your fitness could deteriorate at a level and then you know five years ten years down the line you need to start all over again to build them back up yeah and for me i think just having 
one thing you should always add to the goals is just a well-rounded program of strength, endurance, of in aerobically or not aerobically, like and size or size, but you know structure of the body. I feel like all those things should be extra goals on top of whatever goal they come in with. That way, once a person reaches their first goal, they'll never lose motivation because there's so many other things along the path that they need to add to the situation. Because most, let's be honest, most people's first goal is of some form of vanity. Yeah. And once the vanity's gone, what happens after that? So, yeah, for me, it would be, from an expert point of view, create as many goals as possible, linking in health and linking in, you know, the balance, which is unseen and has nothing to do with the vanity. I agree. And I think find stuff you enjoy. Yes anchor that in there as a core thing because if you enjoy deadlifting if you enjoy tennis whatever it will be then make sure that's a core part of your your training process because it's only going to help you at the same time you want to as Lawrence has, has already said try and get sport involved if if that if that's something that's going to motivate you or um try and get as as he's also said that health aspect is key thanks for listening and we'll be back next week